This is Dialogue with Drake and Naboo. My name is Emma Drake. And I am Sweta Naboo. This is the podcast where we talk about all things policy and politics. We are now well into the fall sitting of the legislature, and it is time for the second part of our lead-up to the legislature series. Just as a heads-up to our listeners, this episode was recorded on October 16, or a few days before the House opened. What this means is that some of the policies we discuss in this episode you might already be familiar with, even though they were new to us when we were doing this interview. Today we are chatting about homelessness, anti-racism advocacy, education, and organ donation. Our guest today is Liberal MLA for D14 West Royalty, fitness expert, sports commentator, and chair of the Standing Committee on Health and Social Development, Gordon McNeely. Well, Gord, thank you so much again for agreeing to guest on our podcast today. Um, Our first question for you is a very important one. How are you? I'm doing well. So thanks for having me on. And and I think this is a a great opportunity to to talk about uh, what should be an exciting legislative fall session. And I'm I'm pretty excited about it. And uh, yeah, it's great to be here to talk a little bit about it and, and whatever else. Rock on. And as listeners know, typically with our lead up to the legislature series, we like to focus on three to five different focus areas. So we'll jump into the first one, which is COVID-19 and education. Uh, Now, one particular issue that you've been quite vocal about throughout the summer and early fall is exactly that, back to school and COVID-19 measures. You were particularly critical of the Department of Education's back to school plan and lack of responsibility. Why were you particularly critical of this plan? Uh, well, that's a great question. And obviously when you've got, when you're in a pandemic um, and you've got kids that are um, under the age of 12 that are not vaccinated, I just felt like that this plan had to be rock solid. We had to do the work in the summer to make sure that the plan was, was put forward. And we knew who was going to be responsible for the plan. Um, you know, I didn't think those things happened with education. I, I thought there could have been been more, uh, you know, sh- strictness around protecting our kids at the start. I know I had a lot of parents like, do they, can they wear masks? Like, like, it was just kind of that, that gray area zone as we headed into school and it wasn't good enough. And then another thing is who was accountable for the plan? We, he- we heard from the Department of Education staff and they just they did when they got into the standing committee they just didn't seem to know i asked them some pointed questions i mean this outbreak hit the school that um, i represent a lot of kids at so i was on top of the file and i was trying my best to work for them to get them answers and to make sure that they were safe and it that was a scary situation um some of the families that were dealing with it were you know i stayed in touch with them and and made sure i was there for them but kids shouldn't have to go through something like that. And did we do everything to protect them? And those are some of the questions that I have heading into the next session. Absolutely. And, you know, as the MLA for West Royalty, as you mentioned, you were particularly impacted by this back to school plan um, where your riding experienced outbreaks of COVID-19 within the schools, including an individual being charged due to failure to self-isolate in connection to this outbreak. Uh, now you mentioned the families within your riding. What types of feedback were you hearing from them during this particularly challenging time? 
Well, when one of my main focuses was the 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 the, the issues when kids get that, and after we've been talking about it as a society, are the issues are, are they being assisted? You know, the, the mental aspect of getting something like that and, and feeling, oh my goodness, I have it. But everybody was fine. I think the department did a good job of supporting the kids in the end with their well-being teams and adding resources. The principal at West Royalty School is is phenomenal. The um, the the teachers and staff they were they were there for the kids. So um, in that sense, it was there. But the master plan was not there to protect or help help the um, situation out. So you know, it was one of those things where um, more rules had to be put in place. And I did come out pretty strongly um, uh, in favor of mandatory vaccines for education and, and working staff. We have to do as much as we can, in my mind, to make sure that our kids were protected. And I, I'm still not sure why we're, there's there's gaps in there and there's there's all these testing procedures and everything for let's just let's mandatory let's make it mandatory let's make sure that we protect our kids and, and that's the stance i took and i'm taking yes on that particular note uh you have been quite vocal over the last number of months on that particular issue of supporting mandatory vaccines for teachers and staff um moving forward how do you feel that would impact the remainder of the school year and school years to come um well, I think it would only enhance um, comfortability in the learning experience and environment. I mean, that's what I'm getting from people is that what, what happens if, if, if there's 20 kids in a, in, a, in a classroom, those 20 kids have families and, and the, the, te the teacher is, you know, um, they're, they're getting tested and everything, but you may as well take it to the next level and do everything you can to protect the kids. And I know teachers have done that in spades and folds. Um, let's just... I would just like to see a policy there that would be okay. We don't have to worry about that. We don't have to worry about the 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 five or six percent. We're all in this together. Um, we're protecting our kids, and I know we do that every day, and teachers do that every day. So th there's some things that we have to learn moving forward. When is the boosters there? Um, you know, we're we're heading into another year of it, so we we have to make sure that we're on top of this and and we do it together. And and I think society and Prince Prince Edward Island we are coming together, but there's always pockets of of um, resistance and, and um, they have a right to resist. They have a right to do that. But when you're dealing with kids that don't have masks or that don't have the vac are able to do vaccines, we have to, we have to do our share, I think. Yes, and I think you make a very good point, which is about looking at people's personal freedoms, but also looking at kind of protecting those who are most vulnerable, you know, amongst us, which are right now the children who can't get vaccinated yet. Now, shifting gears a little bit, we're going to be talking about Organ and Tissue Donation Act. Now, in the upcoming sitting of the PI legislature just next week, um, you know, at some point you will be tabling the Organ and Tissue Donation Act. What is this act and what motivated you to put it forward? Organ and tissue donation is, is incredibly important to, to Islanders. And there's, there's many different aspects about talking about it. We need to, we, we've watched Nova Scotia um, put forward uh, deemed consent or presumed consent. They changed the way the system operates to try to increase the amount of organ donations and that that we can we can have for, so people can live better lives. Um, and in Prince Edward Island, 
we have to talk about this more. We, we are, um, we are falling a little bit behind, um, in terms of organ donations and what it can do uh, for people on dialysis and needing transplants and, and needing those important, in, incredible life-saving gifts. So this legislation will modernize and look at it from a opt, opt, um, opt in point of view, rather than an opt out. So it's, it's, it's when you register for, to be an organ donor, um, it becomes, you become automatically in and the onus is on the person to opt out. So in, in theory, it should allow for more organ donations. Saying that there comes, the, there's a huge education piece. We need more resources in, in this to, to make this work, but the, the, it will pay dividends in the end. And we will, we will continue to be a leader in Prince Edward Island around things just like Nova Scotia put in place. Absolutely. And speaking of Nova Scotia, it's, you know, um, in January of this year that they implemented this kind of opt-out phase um, in a presentation to the Standing Committee on Health and Social Development that you are a chair of. Um, Dr. Stephen Bede, who's the medical director of the Nova Scotia Organ and Tissue Donated Pro uh, Donation Program, um, made a presentation where he stated the infrastructure to support the identification and support of an organ donor doesn't exist in PEI. And the starting point for PEI should not be a new law, it should be an investment in these sorts of basics. Now, when you were working on developing uh, this act that you'll be bringing forward, what upgrades have you identified that are necessary to better support organ donors on PEI? Oh, and that's a, that's a great question. And uh, Stephen B did come in, and who is uh, a leader in getting this this um, this in Nova Scotia, and his work is is, is so incredible um, researching this. But they had the you know I, I believe politics is this is where people this is where we start to talk about policy driving policy, and um, Stephen Beat is someone who's who's in the mix and he's done a great job there, but the political will needs to be there. The political will needed to be there in Nova Scotia to make this happen. So you talk about what comes first. Um, I do believe that this needs to be talked about and it should be talked about in, in the legislative assembly and the debate will be incredible. We need to move forward. So what you're talking about, where do the resources need to be put in place? And there will be need to be resources, a huge education piece, um, you need uh, you need to look at this as having a, a director model. So there's a director, there's staff underneath them. There's educating the emergency doctors, educating the nurses about how we can better serve people in in uh, in, in difficult times. And how does PEI react faster and potentially donate more organs? Um, from Prince Edward Island to hopefully come back to Islanders to hopefully come back to people so that when Islanders, the 46 people who are waiting for organs in Prince Edward Island at this time can be put on the list and make sure that, that, that they become viable options that they don't have to wait as long. We need to make sure if there's, if there's people out there who can support this, we need to act and, and get this process rolling. So it's a little bit of a complex thing. Um, the last thing I'll say uh, uh, to you both is that uh, there's a, it's just a simple enactment clause at the end saying that government, um, after this legislation potentially passes, that government take its time 
that they work towards um, something. And if it's going to take two years, if it's going to take three years, take your time and do it right. But you're having the goal set um, by the legislative assembly that this is important to Islanders and this new system will advance us um, so far because we are falling behind on this. I don't know, yes. hopefully that question. <laughs> <laughs> no, more than enough, that was, that was very thorough. And um, the particular clause that you had mentioned, we saw too, um, was also the case in Nova Scotia when they started this in January. So um, one thing the provinces in Canada are very good at doing is borrowing from one another and, and sharing best practices. So um, looking forward to that debate this fall. Now we're gonna shift gears again to anti-racism. So in June, 2020, you tabled a petition on behalf of the Black Cultural Society of PEI that called on the government of PEI to review all existing legislation within a racially focused lens. Fast forward to 2021, government created the position of the anti-racism policy advisor and the anti-racism table with the role of the table to report directly to executive council on education, justice, health, employment opportunities, social housing programs, services with an anti-racism lens. As the MLA who initially tabled this petition, how do you feel about where we are at right now with anti-racism work on PEI? Great question. I'll, I'll try to answer very quickly. Um, in, in, in important file, and I think that every single island wants us to and to make sure that we're we're working towards a place where there is no racism in prince edward island and then it becomes education it becomes learning it becomes conversations about how we we look at this together um you asked you said i think you said in the question you were like fast forward to 2021 well that's where i had a problem and have a problem with this is i waited patiently um i pushed i talked I asked the questions on the floor of the legislature to each minister about what their efforts were doing about anti-racism um, and, and getting more equity um, when it comes to race in our provincial system. And I'm not incredibly happy with the answers. And the word fast forward should not be used when you're talking about this file and government's actions. Um, the table, the, the petition came out, um, the government decided to move in a different direction outside of the petition um and it just slowed things down i do believe it's been a slow process i believe we've fallen behind other provinces on this and it it was it was we've like congratulations we have our anti-racism person um that's going to look at policy but it's one position um the table is up and going it's going to take time for them to come to their their conclusions we've wasted a series of time and that time we can't get back and I think that you can start to play catch up and the, and the government might be doing that, but there's so much, there's so much in health. We saw, we saw some issues blow up over the summer around um, um, potential racist issues with, with, um, with, with various people come up in the news. I've dealt with some behind the scenes and tried to keep, you know, things calm. I don't want to see it blow up, but, there, but it's, but it's out there. And we need to we need to have direction from our government moving forward on this. And it's got to be crisper. It's got to be 
I, I just, I have questions. You know, we talked about a micro grant program um, versus a loan program. I, I sat up and talked about this for about half an hour in response to the speech from the throne. I have yet to see anything. That was in the spring. So if it's a speech from the throne and you're talking about anti-racism, do it. Make sure that it's there. And I'm, I just have questions like this. So we, we need to come together, move forward, and continue this important work and file together as, as a province, but government needs to take a lead on this. Yes, and especially where we reflect on, you know, now with the table up and running this fall, um, as you mentioned, what's all that time lost since last spring, right? You know, what, what could have been done better? What could have the table played a role in in addressing some of those issues that you mentioned were coming up, no doubt. So definitely um, some opportunities for questions this fall in the legislature. One other item on this topic was that on August 1st, 2021, PEI declared its first ever Emancipation Day to celebrate and remember the day when Britain's parliament abolished slavery and the British Empire in 1834. In an interview with CBC PEI, you expressed your intentions to make Emancipation Day an official holiday in the province in the future. What significance do you feel making it an official holiday would bring and where are you at with the process? No, oh, that's a that's a great question. And Emancipation Day for anybody that's watching. Emancipation Day is again when the British Commonwealth in 1834, um, you know, made legislation to abolish slavery. It was it it was it sh it shouldn't have been in the first place. And you know, you you think about it. What's the significance in PEI? We have had our history of slavery in Prince Edward Island basically scrapped. Um, you wouldn't, you, you don't, people don't understand what the word the bog means. It just, it's a place. Imagine having a community and, and it's, it's gone. It's not there. The history of it has been, been wrote down in a few lines in, in our history books. We had, we had slavery in Prince Edward Island. We had legislation in Prince Edward Island enacting slavery. So it, 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 there's a, re like we, we, when people were coming up from the states, they were bringing slaves to Prince Edward Island to farm the lands of Prince Edward Island. We need to recapture that. Um, and we have to understand that that's an important part of who we are and, and what happened in the past. So Emancipation Day is important for Prince Edward Island. And we had it proclaimed uh, this year, which was a very special moment and had our first, you know, um, first Emancipation Day, which was August 1st. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to legislate that. I'm going to try to bring a bill for legislating it. Because if it was 1834 that it was taken out of the legislation, Emancipation Day should be recognized in Prince Edward Island forevermore, putting it into legislation. Now, um, we talked about a, a paid holiday um, uh, in the media, um, I, am not moving a paid holiday forward on August 1st at this time. If, if somebody is just going to in, enact, um, Emancipation Day for August 1st forevermore in Prince Edward Island, it's open to, to, to that discussion about a holiday, but I think that it's important to recognize the day, um, potentially get more funding for that day to make sure that it becomes um, uh, something that we celebrate in Prince Edward Island and, and we, we, we look at it and come together as a community and, and, and look at that day as a day of importance. 
And really, I completely agree where, you know, it is a day of importance. I remember, you know, when I first heard Emancipation Day was August 1st um, in this neck of the woods, because, you know, where I come from in Mauritius, we celebrate abolition of slavery on February 1st, because that's when uh, the last slaves were freed in 1835. So I've kind of grown up with that being a public holiday and having a lot of celebration and monuments uh, to that. So it is, you know, a little surprising to see that that wasn't the case in PEI. And I'm really pleased to see that we are moving in that direction. So that's really exciting changes coming forward. And I hope the legislation goes well. Now, shifting gears uh, one last time, maybe. Uh, let's talk about a bit more of a serious topic, and that is homelessness. Uh, you know, over the last few years, you have frequently raised concerns around the availability and quality of transitional housing in various shelters around PEI be it around the decreased capacity of the Bedford McDonald House, the poor state of the Deacon House, whose services eventually transitioned to the Smith Lodge. So what do you envision as improvements to transitional housing and shelters on PEI? Great question. And what I see as improvements is government's got to get its act together. It, it, it has to take responsibility and be accountable um, and help transition, not just talk about it, not just put words, not just move, move things around, is that we have to make sure we push government to be accountable that they are the Department of Social Development. They are the Department of Housing. There's a continuum between social development and trying to get people into housing. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure where they are with it, but I will be very active on this file. And I don't think that we are where we need to be in Prince Edward Island. I think we've digressed over the last portion of time. And, you know, I can talk about each one of those things that you mentioned. Um, you know, it's, it's, it might get a little bit complex, but if you look at it, um, are, are we serving the people? Are we helping them to motivate themselves to, to, make that next step, whatever that next step is. And that's how you help people get out of homelessness is you, you transition them, you're there for them. You're providing assistance every step of the way to move them up in different markers. And I think right now we're, we're this government might be content in just making sure everything's okay. And when, every, when you do that, you lose track of your plan, you lose track of your communities around you and you don't get that buy-in and you start to see us not allowing people to take that next step. And this comes down to government, it comes down to leaders, and it comes down to making bold action with strong commitments and evaluating your successes and failures and being honest with them. And to this point, um, I don't believe that is happening. This, is, this stems from a mental health crisis issue, an addictions issue in Prince Edward Island that we haven't dealt with which has spilled over into every other aspects. And if you're not taking care of one, you're not taking care of any. And here we are at this position where there's a lot of people hurting out there. And we've, we've got to make sure that, at least from my side, that I push this government to do better because what they've done so far is, 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 not, is not helping enough people transition to housing units, um, Outreach Center, Smith Lodge, Bedford McDonald House, uh, Blooming House, uh, 
it, it's all a it's all a continuum and you have to be there and you have to be strong a lot of people are working hard just the oversight from government the the in my opinion is is not there and and we're not we're not being successful at this file at this moment mm-hmm. and you make a good point there which is the fact that there seems to be you know a bit of almost an, an epidemic when it comes to uh, mental health issues and addiction issues on PEI. One of the cornerstone, you know, services that is available to folks facing homelessness is the Community Outreach Center. Um, on October 1st, 2021, a group that called themselves the Concerned Residence Group presented to the Standing Committee on Health and Social Development um, their concerns regarding the Community Outreach Center's new location, which is the Charlottetown Curling Club. What were some of the concerns that they brought forward? They brought back safety. Um, you know, they they that was a that was a huge concern. They brought back um, uh, oversight. They brought back. They were not able to attain the simplest, the simplest conversations with the minister and premier. They have requests in. They did not call them back. I mean, unacceptable have conversations with these people have conversations with you know if a, if, if the service when the outreach center went there and if if you go back through hansard <clears throat> i asked the minister a, a, a lot of questions i said have a public meeting and um i i said get your your stuff to let us know what you're doing at that time it was just a plan they didn't know what they were doing and before you know it uh, the outreach center is there with no consultation with the community. Um, they, they almost laughed at some of my questions. They almost laughed at me. And if you go back and look at them, I would ask the same questions today um, because they didn't do the process of letting the community know, talking to the staff, talking to the clients, um, doing what was in their best interest. And, and right now, um, they, they need to take responsibility for for you know being that that overseer and i'm just that was what the group was talking about they're very concerned about that plus they're they're they they wanted to work they they had a series of recommendations from that standing committee one was to have 24-hour security one was to make sure that there's conversations with the community um some of the recommendations and their recommendations stand for themselves so it's up to government to address and to talk about that and to make sure that um, we, we get this important program right. So it's working for the staff, it's working for the clients, and it's working for the community. And when you miss those steps in the, those conversations and don't return people's calls, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't make sense. I don't know how you can move forward with a successful program. So those are some of the things that, that, um, that are important. And I mean, I've been down to the average center. I'm, I, I, I want this important center to work. The clients are amazing. Um, they, you know, you just have to make sure that you're overseeing and, and, and have your goals for a program like this. What are the goals of the outreach center? Is it to move people into transitional housing? Is it to, you know, assist them in the, in the short and temporary? Is it to give them what, what is it? I need to know that from government. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, and you know, of course, that is certainly uh, one side of the issue and many concerns that were presented uh, by this group to the committee. But um, as of now, are there any considerations around uh, inviting the working group in charge of the center's operations to present to the committee as well? Of course, this uh, working group consists of representatives from a number of nonprofit organizations um, and support services that are currently within the center. Absolutely. We uh, definitely, the standing committee <clears throat> wants to hear about um, the incredible work that the working group has done. They're, they're just, for them to take it on, to oversee and to, to be, they're busy as well. So, you know, we're, we're, they're busy trying to, to work and to merge with this. So, yes, we want to hear from government. Obviously, we want to hear from the working group. And it's the committee's, uh, the committee's already kind of talked about that and I'm sure once we get through this session we're back into committee work we would absolutely I'll put the we'll put the question out to the committee the committee is welcome to bring in any information I know there was some interest from the committee so I definitely would like as the chair of the committee it's the committee's will um, we will hear from them and I think it's important to to hear from them and and acknowledge and, and the, the important work that they've done for years there's some incredible organizations on there that that have really, really worked hard for to, to change poverty in Prince Edward Island and to to make sure they're there. So absolutely, we're going to we're going to hopefully uh, see and talk with them. And we're looking forward to that as well, I think. One thing I've noticed in the last number of years that has changed quite a bit from previous years with the legislature is the role of committees and they've become so much more intrinsic to the entire legislative process. And so I'm just excited to have that continue and, and hopefully to see them speak. One last more serious item for you, Gord. We've taken so much of your time. Of course, with the fall sitting, we're also talking about the capital budget. What are you most looking forward to including in this capital budget? Well, one of the things that I am looking for right off the bat is um, ventilation and uh, making sure that ventilation comes to those 10 schools. Um, the government, I don't understand. They've been dragging their heels and there's an opportunity to, to fix ventilation issues. And we, we know that opening up a window is 50 times less effective than having pure ventilation in the school. So why, why are we not doing that? But also, Emma, it's, it's to take it to the seniors housing units. And I would bring you into some and I would, you know, the I have them here. Uh, I, I think of Huntington Court. I've done a lot of work over there for the great people over there. You walk in there and you just feel tired when you're walking in the hallway. And it has a lot to do with the, the air ventilation or the movement those units need to be looked at. They were built in the 70s. Um, so we need to upgrade those units um, across our province. So we make sure, that's something we didn't talk about today, is the seniors and the, the, the long-term care crisis and seniors living and seniors housing, um, incredibly important issues. So those are a couple of the things I want repairs. There was a half a million dollars promised to Huntington Court. Um, for repairs there, I'll be watching for that specific line for my constituents. Um, and after that, we're talking about, I, I put a, I put a couple things in there that I would like around wellness and uh, making sure that yes, we're dealing with a pandemic, but we have to make sure that we, 
to keep investing in wellness for our province, getting people healthy and active. Do what you can out there. If you're listening to this, make sure you're keeping yourself healthy and, and play your part too as well. So that's a little bit off the off the beaten path here, Emma, but hopefully I answered your question. No, I mean, uh, you, you absolutely answered the question. And I was thinking, you know, it wouldn't be an interview with Gord if we weren't talking about being active at least once. So I'm yeah. glad we've been able to check that little box there. Um, and, you know, if someday we should have some sort of virtual workout session through dialogue. I feel like that would be really funny, but it could also work really well. <laughs> Yes, yes, exactly. But I want to, I want to, you know, a lot of this stuff is as critics, um, you know, you often talk about, uh, you know, we're doing our job in the opposition to make sure this is how the system works. So we're being democratic. We're trying to, when you get in there, it's, it's, it's a matter of pushing, pushing, pushing. But I also want to give credit to uh, uh, James Edward and transportation. Um, you know, we we worked on a project to build an active transportation lane. You see some of those going in Prince Edward Island. Well, there's one in my community that links um, two different sections by the industrial park. Um, I'm going I'm going to thank him because it's it's up. It's a kilometer long. It was crucially important along the highway. And I can't wait to, I'm going to take that. I'm going to run events out there. We're going to have little runs for the kids. We're going to make sure that we push that. But that's a good way that I just wanted to say on there that, you know, good things happen between things. So uh, a big shout out to uh, uh, Minister uh, uh, Edward for, for putting an active transportation right in my community. Awesome. And we'll keep an eye out as well for any events uh, that involve running across the along the highway on that active transportation lane. Um, and, you know, this brings us to the end of our kind of more formal segment um, of this episode. Now, as our listeners will know, we typically follow, you know, the formal interview section with our more informal beer panel. Now, it's called a beer panel, but it's really taken on a life of its own throughout the episodes. Um, and it's really just a chance for us to share with our listeners some recommendations of uh, a favorite beverage, a recipe, a dessert, anything. Now, Gord, as our guest today, we'd like to invite you to go first. What would you like to recommend to listeners? Oh, wow. I want to recommend um, any kind of Caribbean food, any kind of... Uh, like there's this dish called roti and only certain people can make it, but they're coming along. We're getting it in Prince Edward Island. So if you ever get a chance to get a roti, um, curry, uh, just, just keep it Caribbean. And, and those are, those are some uh, big shout out to Sabina who makes incredible food and her sister out of Africa, just doing incredible things. Uh, the flavors beer wise, any craft beer in Prince Edward Island, come on upstream. What are you talking about? Do it incredible. <laughs> up here uh we've got some incredible beers in prince edward island just anything you just hear that and you just drink it down so make sure you have a beer responsibly and and keep it local for sure so i just get excited about all our local food and flavors and and tastes and and uh and the wines here too and get to the liquor store and grab some of those pei wines because whew, they're they're my daughter got married. I brought some of those PEI wines with me and they were like, whoa, this wine is really good. So get it, keep it local. Yeah, I, I think I'm a little ashamed to say I've never tried a PEI wine. 
and I, I don't know, Emma just gasped. So I think this is really bad indeed. Uh, but Emma, would you like to go next? Well, in fairness to you, Sweta, I think I've only had PEI wine probably less than five times, not very often. The one kind I would definitely recommend though is blueberry wine, which PEI of course with our blueberry industry is very known for. So I would definitely uh, jump on that recommendation too. Now I have to provide an Ontario recommendation because that's currently where I'm physically located while I'm also an upstreet, a ride or die. People could check the receipts in the previous episodes, but I will give a new recommendation because I think I've recommended the white noise probably about 10 times at this point. But what I will recommend is um, it's called Broadhead Brewery. It's in Orleans, Ontario. I'm not even sure where that is. Ontario is just so big. I mean, it could be anywhere. Us PI kids, you know, it's well, is it within driving distance? Probably not. But what I would recommend is the Tangerine IPA. Again, oh. um, as people know me, if you're listening, IPAs are typically the main thing that I drink. What I would say about this Tangerine IPA is it's a little bit more palatable if IPAs aren't your thing. Um, definitely a, a little bit more kind of sweeter around the kind of tangerine orangey tones, but it's, uh, it's quite good and definitely would recommend. It's not a white noise though, so I'll leave <laughs> on that note. <laughs> Awesome. And uh, looking forward to trying that one. Um, I guess I'll close off. Um, it's still fall and I still like pumpkin. So I'm going to re recommend the pumpkin ale from a PI Brewing Company, which is a seasonal, comes back every year and I always look forward to it. But as he was speaking, Gord, I was thinking of um, the new French Caribbean place at the Founders Hall, which is Dacha, which has some yeah. of really, really good uh, book it and the folks who work there are also incredible. So if anyone's going down to Founders Hall, just check it out. The, the people are really nice and the food is even better. Awesome. I guess this brings us to the end of this interview. Thank you so much for joining us today, Gord. We really appreciate you taking time out of your beautiful, it's looking beautiful outside, Saturday morning to chat with us about the upcoming fall city. It's a real pleasure, and and thanks for the work that that you're doing, and and, uh, and and much continued success. And I think Orleans is just outside of Ottawa, but you can Google that probably faster than I can. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, everybody. Bye. All the best. Bye. Bye. Yeah. Thank you so much, Gord. Hey, thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. That's all the time we have for today, folks. Thank you so much to Gord for sharing his insights with us. As always, our opening and closing music is Gas Busy by Shane Pendergast. You could buy Shane's folk CDs on the website shanependergast.com or find his music through Spotify and Apple Music. Stay warm, stay safe. This has been Dialogue.